Well, I blew it. Someone said to me this morning, man, you look very pastoral. (laughs) I know, it's like, I'm okay with pastoral, but very pastoral is like, uh, dang. Uh, Anyway, it is what it is. Uh, Hey, happy Thanksgiving. We're glad that you're here today. We are working our way through Acts, and in the middle of Acts, there's missionary journeys that Paul has taken, and he's stopped and written letters to different churches. And the letter that we're on right now is Galatians. We're actually in Galatians chapter 3. And what has happened, for those of you that are guests with us, is Paul is teaching freedom, he's teaching identity, he's teaching grace, and he's left and gone back home And then the Judaizers have come from Jerusalem and pretty much said, hey, whatever he taught you, whatever he told you about Jesus and everything is true, but he's leaving out that you still need to be circumcised, you still need to follow the law, you still need to do these things, and it's an exact opposite of what Paul taught. Paul found out about it, and then he writes this letter to the church at Galatia. In chapter 3, he begins to make his argument. He actually makes six arguments. Today, we'll cover the third argument. Last week, we covered, he made a personal appeal to them. The first few verses of chapter 3, he just said, this is what you've experienced, and you need to know that what you experienced is absolutely true in Jesus Christ. Then the next few verses, 6 through 14, he takes... Six Old Testament references and talks about those references in relationship to the law and grace. So what they valued, the Word of God, which all they had at the time was the Old Testament, those stories, especially the Torah, which is what he used, he's, he made an argument about that. Now we get to this third argument And this third argument, he reasons with the readers. This this should hit home with you. Because now he's trying to talk very logically to you. How this breaks out. And I think that as we go, obviously we know that our faith is based upon faith. Just believing. But at the same time, we feel comfort with a logical argument, right? Just to be able to explain it. Although, I'm coming to find out I prefer the unexplainable. As a pastor, I don't always have the answers. I think I get uh, looked to all the time for answers, and uh, I probably rejoice in the fact that I can't answer that. Because if I could explain every detail about God, then he would not be God. And so I I trust the Lord and I have faith. But for today's argument, we're really talking about uh, if salvation, does it involve the law or does it not involve the law? This is the question that the readers are asking him 
if you say this doesn't have anything to do with the law, why are you referring to the law? You just went back and you made six different references to the Old Testament about the law. He wanted to prove, he wanted to prove the insignificance of the law. Now, if the law is set aside, then his arguments become worthless. And so, therefore, he literally uses the law to come back right here and prove it logically. Galatians 3, verse 15 says this. Brothers and sisters. He, <laughs> he uses brothers and sisters. Actually, in the Greek, it just says brothers, but where modern translations have added the sisters, yes. Brothers and sisters, that's the first time he's referred to them as brothers since the very first verse in the letter to Galatians. The other places he's like, you fools, have you, you know, he didn't call them fools, but he says, you, you're acting foolish, you know, and he's being very harsh with them, but now he's like trying to get to their hearts. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Paul, what he's doing here is he's quoting from the law. Now he has to show his argument that the law did not change the covenant. There was a covenant made between God and Abraham. And he's willing to say, this did not change. Once two parties, listen to this, once two parties conclude an agreement, a third party cannot come along years later, and change that agreement. The only persons who can change the original agreement would be the parties that it originated with. To add anything to it or to take anything away from it would be illegal. He's honing in on the logistics of this. The promise that was made to Abraham by God in Genesis 15 was around 2000 BC. Let that calculate for a second. God made a promise to Abraham in 2000 BC, 2000 years before Jesus even came. The law was given to Moses around 1450 BC. That's almost half a millennium. 450 years or 430 years of slavery. So, watch. In verse, in verse 16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 3, what that promise was. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham in 2000 BC. You with me? Then verse 16 continues. This is interesting here. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. 
This is interesting because now Paul is interpreting what was actually written in the Torah. And in this instance right here, he actually refers to the seed as singular. In other words, what is coming from Abraham is Jesus Christ. The interesting fact is in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he takes the same word seed and uses it as plural. Paul's interpreting the same covenant, the same word seed as singular and also as plural in a different reference. The reason that he does it here singularly is because he's wanting to show that you come from Christ and not biologically. This is through Christ. And then verse 17, it says, my point is this. The law, which came 430 years later after this, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. The promise was made by God. The presentation of the law did not change the promise made between God and Abraham. In fact, ratified by God alone, because Abraham was asleep. If you actually look at Genesis 15, it says it came in a vision. Who made the promise? Abraham received the promise. God made the promise. It came from God to Abraham. Abraham didn't have to do anything. Remember the last week we talked about because Abraham believed he was credited righteousness. All long before the law came along. So if God's the one that made this covenant, if God's the one that made this promise, only God can change that. It's not based upon perfecting the law. Watch verse verse 18. It says, For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Abraham couldn't revise the covenant. Neither could Moses, who was given the law. They couldn't change it. Moses came along 430 years later and he was given the law. The law is not, and it has never intended to be the means by which believers experience their inheritance as God's children. Did you hear that? That was not the purpose of the law is for you to earn your righteousness by obeying the law. 1 Corinthians 15.56, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You see, the law demands do this. The promise grants accept this. Two totally different things. Then he really talks about the purpose of the law in these next verses. He says in verse 19, why then was the law given? What's the purpose of the law? Paul 
it's amazing because he's literally writing this letter. He's not having a conversation with the churches at Galatia, but he's sitting here making these arguments, first the personal argument, and then using the Old, Old Testament as his argument, and now being logical, he's literally thought out, what are they going to say to this, to this, to this, to this, to this? And he's answering their questions before they can even ask the questions. He says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, in my version it's a capital S, meaning referring to Christ, until the seed to whom the promise would made, was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Okay, let's break that down for a second. The law came. Here's the purpose of the law. The purpose of a law, you can look at Romans chapter 4, verse 15, and let's define sin. Because the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is transgression. Now here's the big verse that you want to write down and underline. Romans 5.20 says, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. What is the purpose of the law? If you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20, why does the church not teach this? The purposes of the law came along so that sin would increase. Did you, did you, did you hear what I just said? God brought the law along, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, so that sin would increase. Do not look at my music stand. That's what the law does. Because some of you immediately looked at it. And some of you are still trying not to look at it. That's what the law does. Don't touch the wet paint. What do you do? Is it really wet? That's not me. That's Romans 5.20. Write that down. You see, the law was intended to be temporary. It was after the covenant made with Abraham, and it ended before the covenant was actually fulfilled. There were no ifs in the covenant with Abraham like there was in the law to Moses. When he brought the law, if you do this, then I will do this. For Abraham, it was simply, I'm going to do this for you. Verse 20, it says, Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Moses was the mediator that received the law and the law actually needed a go-between person. If you look at that previous verse that we read, it says the law was given to Moses by God, but through angels. The law came to Moses through angels. It needed a mediator. God went directly to Abraham when he made his promise. He didn't need a mediator. Verse 21, it says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. I, you know, we teach 
we teach in here the difference between law and grace, and sometimes I think that you may walk out of here and go, and the law is evil. Well, it's not. It has a purpose. It says, For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. While they seem contrary to one another, if you go to deep enough, you'll discover that they actually complement one another. Think, of, think about this for a second. Are law and grace opposite from each other? The opposite of law would be lawlessness. The opposite of grace would be disgrace. The two actually complement each other. So then you ask the question, why was the law given? If we could attain righteousness by fulfilling the law, then Christ's sacrifice on the cross would be pointless. So why were we given the law? It was the worship of the law that led Israel to this self-righteousness. It's this, God loves us so much that He gave us the law. And because He gave us the law, we're going to make it really, really important for the rest of our lives. No matter what Jesus did on the cross, because God gave it to us, we're going to make it really, really important. And that's why they went back behind Paul and said, no, 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 you've got to obey the law because it's important. Verse 22, it says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Romans 7.12 says this, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. It is here that we see the way that law and grace cooperate in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. The law shows the sinner his guilt, and grace actually shows him the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They work well together. The law is holy, just, and good, according to Paul in Romans chapter 7. But at one point, we were unholy, unjust, and bad. The law does not make, watch this, the law does not make us sinners because we were born with the seed of Adam. We were already born with the sinful nature. No one teaches babies how to sin. They're born with the sinful nature. The law didn't have anything to do with that. It just reveals to us that we're already sinners. Verse 23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. 
I, I try to I try to think of a way to show you uh, because some reason you get illustrations and it just sticks with you. But I asked this morning this question about powdered donuts. If powdered donuts represented sin, all right, let's think about this for a second. We don't have powdered donuts over there because it makes a mess. Now, if this represents sin, This represents the law. This is a mirror. Oh my. I've got a mess. I've sinned because of this powdered sugar donut. But the law shows me that I've sinned. Watch this. Wait, the law didn't clean me. It's impossible for the law to clean me. shoes. Thanks. Thank you. There was nothing I could do to clean myself. I needed someone else to clean the sin off of me. Completely. It's all gone. This is all, Paul's trying to logically explain to you how this works. Just let it make sense. They're trying to convince you, do all these things to convince you that the law can justify your righteousness. But I'm telling you, there's nothing you can do. It's Christ that has to do it alone. Verse 25 it says, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Some of your translations say tutor. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Here's what happened in those days. They had, uh, they, they referred to them as slaves, let's say servants. Uh, they had very highly educated slave servants. And these slave servants would take time with the kids, take time with the kids to train them in the law, to train them and to literally walk them around town and teach them to become their tutor. And so what Paul is doing here, he's literally making reference 
to a situation that they would be very familiar with. The law is the tutor. The person that's highly educated and helps train your kids. And he's saying here, the law didn't give life to Israel. The Judaizers are teaching that the law was necessary for life and for righteousness. And Paul's doing everything he can right here to say, no, this isn't the case. Once this child comes of age right here, they no longer need a guardian. Once they grow up, that that tutor is not necessary. The law literally performed its purpose. The Savior has come and the guardian is no longer needed. It's, um, It's tragic. You know, been to Israel a couple times, getting ready to go over this fall, and to walk among the people and they can't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah to this day. They still don't see it. They definitely didn't see it back then. You know, in, the, in this time, when Paul's writing this letter, God finally had to destroy the temple and remove the sacrifice because they wouldn't quit. They continued it. Now, now there's no temple there even to this day and there's not an altar to make the sacrifices on. Yet, they still don't see Jesus as the Messiah. He has no altar, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no temple, no king. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. And the crazy thing, all of these have been fulfilled through Jesus Christ so that any man, Jew or Gentile, who trusts Christ becomes a child of God. Last few verses here, he says this. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Faith in Jesus baptizes us into Christ. Just the idea that you believe means that you have been baptized in Christ. Yeah, we go to the ward's house in the summertime and we get into the swimming pool and we baptize. But the one thing that I'll always do right before I take each person into the swimming pool and baptize them, like physically take them under the water, is I explain to them what this water baptism is. Although the baptism represents their salvation, it has nothing to do with their salvation. That once they are buried under the water, that is their old life, their sinful nature that goes under the water, And when they come out of the water, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This represents their new life in Christ. All that is is a representation of a decision that they've already made. And they're just making it public. So when he's referring here to once they believe, they have actually been baptized into Christ, the moment that you believe 
those two little words, in Christ. You are in Christ. You, you think on a linear timeline, but once you are in Christ, you are in Christ from the very beginning, the very beginning creation, all the way to eternity future. You're in Christ. That moment that you believe. So that whole water baptism is just an outward picture. Verse 28, it says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's literally sit here and said, since Jesus came and He's offered this new covenant, He showed you the purpose of the law. We really don't have two different faiths. We have one faith and it's in Jesus Christ. And we are all the same, both the Jews and the Gentiles. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Savior, the one who washes away your sin for you. He says we're all on the same page. You know, the Pharisee would pray each morning, I thank thee, God, that I'm a Jew, not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, and a free man and not a slave. Yet all those distinctions Paul's literally saying right here, are removed in Christ. All the same. All the same. No distinctions. And then he closes his argument here, this logical argument with verse 29. He says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Father Abraham. I read to you again, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, what that promise was. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, your Christian life ought to take on a whole new wonder and our meaning as you realize what you actually have in Christ Jesus. And all of this is by grace, not by the law. You're an adult son, daughter in God's family, an heir of God. The question I have for you this morning is, are you drawing on your inheritance? Do you realize what you've got? (laughs) Do you realize what you got? Father, my prayer is that every day, 
every person in this room realizes a little bit more every day what we've got. That somehow, some way, you unpack it and that your spirit reveals it to us. It's going to take you to do that. May we continue to walk this journey here on earth through the junk and know that you love us just as we are. That you have redeemed us. That you have forgiven us. That you have washed us totally clean. And we can walk in the righteousness that you've made us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.